Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Hey guys, I'm Julia. I'm going to be reading scripture for us tonight. It comes from Ephesians 5, verse 21 through 33. It reads, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Y'all pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for RUF and every individual that you have brought here tonight just to be in your presence and to worship you. I pray that you would speak through Austin tonight, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what you are going to say to us through Austin. Jesus, I pray that we just leave large group tonight feeling so refreshed and ready to take on the rest of this week. We love you, Lord. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Julia. Um, hey, y'all, listen, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Austin McCann. I'm RUF campus minister here. Really glad you're here tonight. Um, look, if you've been with us, we've been walking through a relationship series this fall. And really, this is your first time walking through the doors of Office Chapel for RUF. We're really glad you're here. We want this to be a safe place where you can come every week, no matter what your week looked like, and investigate the truth claims of the gospel, no matter if you've been a Christian your entire life, or if you're not a Christian, you're very skeptical of the Bible. We, we want you to be here. We want this to be a place for you to bring your questions. So thanks for being here tonight. Um, normally what we do in large group is we take a book of the Bible and we march through it. But tonight, uh, like we have all semester, we've been walking through a relationship series and considering what the Bible has to say about our relationships, how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to this world. And the question that we've been asking this fall has really been this. What does God and his gospel have to do with all of these really complicated relationships in my life? And what scripture has held out for us is everything. Right now, after two weeks, we just completed our, our dating, kind of part one, part two, okay? And finally tonight, we come to a definition, and we come to a relationship with definition, okay? Um, fair warning, I, I preached a lot of this sermon last spring when we were going through Ephesians, okay? So there are going to be things that you hear again tonight if you were, if you were here last spring. Uh, really, the Christian life, what you learn is that you, you're, it involves learning new things about God, all the time, but it also involves being reminded and remembering things about who God is because we're forgetful people. So whether you were here last uh, spring and you heard this sermon 
let it be a refresher and a reminder and a remembrance for you. And if this is your first time, we're glad you're here. Uh, okay, look, I understand the, the vast majority of, it, of you in here tonight are not married, okay? Right? But, uh, but Paul's instructions tonight, what we'll see, is that they still apply and are important for all of us tonight. Right? For some of you, tonight will help you make sense of some of the wounds in your life because of broken marriages that you've lived under. Right? For some of you, it will help you understand your fears of marriage. Okay? And for many of you, it's, it's going to help maybe place some of your longings for marriage and some of those desires. And for others of you, it's going to encourage you if you never get married. Okay, so this is what I'll hold out for you. Okay? Th- three important features of relating in marriage tonight. Okay, so if you're a note taker, here you go. Three Ps. All right, the purpose of marriage, the pattern of marriage, and the power of marriage. Okay, the purpose, the pattern, and the power. So first, the purpose of marriage, okay? Very quickly, what, what is the Bible's view of marriage? Okay, I realize if you're not a Christian tonight, you probably have an understanding, but I at least want to define this for us again, okay? Right, God's word is clear that the nature of marriage is a covenantal union designed and ordained by God between one man and one woman. We see this clearly laid out in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, really all throughout Scripture. And the Bible also reveals marriage to exist for many purposes, right? Marriage exists to glorify God. Marriage exists so that through it, humanity, humanity can serve God through children, right? And another reason that is, uh, is that it is only the proper context for sexual intimacy to take place between a man and a woman. We'll, we will unpack that more. I know in a vacuum that statement is like, ooh, but I promise we will unpack that next week, okay? We will be talking about sex next week, so... Uh, yeah, join us if you want to. Uh, right? Uh, so that's what it is, okay? But let's consider the central purpose here in Ephesians 5, what the purpose of marriage is. Right, we all know this, okay? The purpose of something, of really anything, is, is just incredibly important. Right? Because until you know that something's purpose, right, you will always be confused over its functions and operations. You won't be able to assess whether it's working properly. Uh, for example, right, think about the purpose of Christmas music, okay? Right, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear, okay? But if you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, you've defeated the purpose of it, right? Because you've had no time. Like, what is, what is good for marriage? Okay, like, what is a good marriage? Well, it actually depends on its purpose. Okay, we know this, right, throughout history and many different cultures, there have been many different ideas of what the purpose of marriage should look like, right? Some of that has been economic advancement. Sometimes that the purpose of marriage should be children, right? The, the purpose of marriage should be social stability, stability and reputation. Sometimes the purpose of a marriage was to secure safety and alliances between nations. Right, but if I was to take a shot at what today's view of marriage is, right, I would say that the contemporary culture says that the primary purpose of marriage is individual happiness and pleasure. Right, so, so if, if marriage is, is making you happy, right, if it's satisfying you, then it's a good marriage. 
But if it's disappointing you, if it's inconvenient, if it's no longer meeting your needs, then it's not worth it. That must mean it's a bad marriage. Right, but, but did you notice what Ephesians 5 dares to say about what the purpose of marriage is? Listen to the language here. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then in verse 31, it quotes the first marriage between Adam and Eve and says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Over and over in Ephesians 5, Paul is saying that marriage in this world, its purpose is to be a reflection of, a picture of Jesus' relationship to his people, his church. Okay, That means that its purpose is to be a divine drama, a living parable, a gospel reenactment that displays to this world what Christ's relationship to his church is truly like. Right, I'll, uh, I'll never forget seeing the play Les Mis uh, in, in London, okay, for the first time. It, it, it really was amazing. Um, yeah, it was so good. But, but like, right, if you've seen this play, really any play, um, especially in Les Mis, it takes the realities of history. Okay, I know it's historical fiction, but it takes a majority of the realities of history, namely the French Revolution and the late, late 1700s and its early uprisings in the early 1800s. And it takes things that are true, things that we can no longer see, and it makes them come to life on stage. And it makes you actually experience joy and sadness and the grace and, and the law and heartache and hope. And there's always a standing ovation at the end of the play. Why? Well, because the things that are true, that are invisible, take on visible form, and it moves everyone. And Paul in Ephesians 5 is saying, yes, <laughs> something like that. The invisible but true fact of world history is that there is a God who has a permanent, loving relationship with his people. And the gift of earthly marriage is that invisible reality that is made visible between a husband and a wife. That the ultimate purpose of marriage is to teach us what Jesus' relationship to his church is and what it's like. And to actually confirm that reality in our hearts. All right, so it's like when, when you see a husband cherishing his wife, actually caring for her, taking great delight in her, bringing joy to her, that is supposed to lift up our eyes and say, wow, like that's a small picture of, of Jesus' loving love and cherishing for me. Like when you see a wife respond to, a, to the loving care of, of her husband with delight, with affection and trust, with wanting to bring her husband joy, it's supposed to lift our eyes and say, wow, that's a small taste of how I respond to the sacrificial love and care of Jesus. I'm to receive his love and to respond with trust and delight. Right? And let me say something by way of application here, okay? Because if the purpose of marriage is a divine drama for you and I to better see and taste and understand Jesus' relationship with his church, right? Then what that means is that one of the main reasons it actually produces marriage to be easily become an idol for all of us, right? Right? We know what an idol is. 
if it's simply a false god in your life, something that you look for to find security or identity or hope or life, it's normally a good thing in your life that you've made an ultimate thing, okay? Because if the, if the purpose of earthly marriage is to be a reflection of the gospel, then we can confuse marriage with the gospel itself, right? Right? In an earthly marriage, there's stability, security, intimacy. But the problem is that our sinful hearts takes the reflection, and what we do is we actually make it our hope instead of the real thing. Okay, we're tempted to think, man, like, if I could just get married before I graduate, if I could just get that ring by spring, like, then everything's going to be okay. Then I'd make it, right? But, like, if I can just get married, then all my insecurities are going to go away. Like, I'll know that I'm finally with somebody. I'll be satisfied. I can finally have sex whenever I want, right? But, but if we believe that about marriage, okay, Ephesians 5 is saying you're asking the reflection to be the real thing. I love the way that Jeremiah, too, puts this, okay? There's just this beautiful language that God uses speaking through Jeremiah. And speaking of Israel's idolatry, the Lord through Jeremiah says this, For my people have committed to evil. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and created for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. That's what we're doing, okay, when we idolize earthly marriage. When you're putting your hope in something that feels like intimacy and stability and security that only Jesus brings. Right? Marriage is good and beautiful insofar that we recognize the fountain of living water is our bridegroom Jesus, not our earthly spouse. Okay? Like, that will actually begin to enable you more to love your spouse. Premarital counseling session 101. Okay? Right? Paul is making the case that the purpose of marriage is a living parable of, the, of Jesus the bridegroom, his love for his bride, the church. And if the purpose of marriage is a gospel reenactment, it begins to explain the pattern of marriage, okay? So let's consider our second point here, right? Because if marriage is this, is this divine drama, then, then each person has a specific role or part in this drama, right? And the marriage works considering the roles that are actually played out. Right, what, what I think is fascinating about this passage is that What's kind of shocking is how little detailed application there is of what Paul includes about marriage, right? There are no exhaustive, okay, detailed instructions about how these roles of a husband and a wife actually play out, right? There's nothing about how much each spouse, you know, works in the home or out of the home. There's nothing about who takes the trash out or who washes the dishes, right? There's nothing about who runs the finances or, or who does not. Why? Well, because every marriage is different and each spouse is, is different with different strengths, you have different histories, you have different weaknesses, different personalities, different experiences, okay? And while the exhaustive application is not there, Paul does give us a pattern of marriage with the general roles that each spouse should play in this and display this divine drama of Jesus' love for his church, okay? Right, so husbands in this reenactment, okay? You are to play the role of Jesus. You love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? Wives... You play the role of the church as, as the church submits to Christ, okay? Let me say this, all right? Like, I am well aware that there is language in this passage, like headship and submission, which has been 
wickedly abused, okay, in history and in marriages. And some of you may have grown up in that, and, and that makes you really uncomfortable, okay? But I hope that you will see that actually these words, right, in its proper context, okay, ultimately display God himself and how he relates to himself actually within his Trinitarian nature between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so with that said, let me start with the husband, okay? In verses 25 through 30, and verse 33, right? What does this role in the pattern of marriage look like for a husband? Right, the role of the husband is that he is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. So headship, it is a position of authority, okay? But what's the model to follow? Right, how is headship actually lived out? <laughs> Listen to what Paul says, okay, verse 25. Christ the head loved the church by giving himself up for her. And verse 29 says that Christ actually nourishes and cherishes the church. That's the language attached to headship. Okay, is there an authority and responsibility placed on the husband? Yes, absolutely. But it's an authority and responsibility that is to be shaped by and therefore reflect Jesus' headship. Okay, so how does Jesus' headship of the church actually look? <laughs> right, Jesus... If you read, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you read his ministry, right, if you read the entire Bible, right, Jesus uses all of his authority to sacrificially serve, cherish, and love his bride, us. Jesus actually made himself nothing. Philippians 2 tells us that. That he became poor, he was humiliated, he was rejected, and he went to a cross and took our sin and the wrath of God so that he could have us as his bride and present us before the Father, without spot or blemish, washed and clean. You see, Jesus made himself low in sacrificial service, what we would call cruciform love. That is what defines Jesus' headship. So hear me say this. Like, if you ever find anyone right, who, who tries to sever headship in the context of marriage from the language of sacrificial love, then it is always anti-gospel. Okay, let me say that again. Right? If you ever find someone who tries to sever headship in the context of marriage from the language of sacrificial love, then it is always anti-gospel. Alright? Always. <laughs> everything. Okay? I mean, everything in Jesus' life, he did in submission to his heavenly Father and for the sake and the good of his bride, his church. His entire life was submission. Um, okay, during the 1980s, uh, there was a godly man named Robertson McQuilkin. Okay, uh, he was the president of Columbia Bible College and Columbia Graduate School and, and Mission School in, in South Carolina. Um, he, he really was an incredible leader. Okay, he, he was doing amazing things by making this school really one of the best Christian training grounds in the country. Okay, and in 1990, Robertson McQuilkin actually resigned from his post as president for the, really the best of reasons. And here is what he told an audit audience as, as he resigned from his position. This is what he wrote. He said, my dear wife, Mariel, has been failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Bible College. 
Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is, is content most of the time when she is with me, and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me, and always goes in search of me when I leave the home. Then she's full of anger when she cannot get to me, so it is clear that she actually needs me now more than ever. You see, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So, as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity had something to do with it. But so does fairness. You see, Muriel has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. And if I care for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. So there is more. I love Mary. It's not that I have, I have to care for her. It's that I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. That was his resignation. And there it is. See, a husband loving and cherishing and dying to anything that comes between him and his wife. And that is a glimmer of Jesus. The phrase, be a man, always means be like Jesus. Gentle, kind, loving, patient, forgiving, willing to lose for the sake of someone else. To die to anything that comes between their love. To die to anything that would hinder the good of his wife. It's a headship that is characterized by nourishing and cherishing. That's what headship means, okay? John Stott said this, If headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. You see, the pattern is that the husband is to play the role of headship shaped by Jesus' loving, tender, and selfless love. It's to re- reflect Jesus' sacrificial love. That's what it means, okay? That's the role of the husband. Let me now go to the wife, okay? Here's the role of the wife, okay? Paul first addresses wives here, okay? And his instruction for the wife to play is actually the part of the church, right? To submit to your own husband as the church submits to Christ, okay? Let me say this. Submission is a charged word in our vocabulary and culture, okay? And let me say three things about this real quick, right? First, let me say this. It is so important to look at this through the lens of the Trinity, okay? And the role that Jesus plays in our redemption, right? Because submission... It has nothing to do with value, dignity, or worth, okay? Jesus, God himself, right, was always submissive to his heavenly Father, to his authority, and yet Jesus is always equal in power and glory and value as his heavenly Father, okay? That's the first thing. Second thing is this, is that this command is a, is a role specifically for marriage, Okay? This is not a general command for women to men, okay? It certainly isn't a command for girlfriend and boyfriend, all right? The, this only pertains to, to a wife and her husband, all right? The third thing is this, is that the Bible clearly acknowledges and outlines, okay, the evil and the harm that is done when people use authority to abuse, oppress, and manipulate instead of lovingly serve. You see, Jesus hates it more than we do, actually, because it's such a misrepresentation of who he is. 
It's terrible, and our history is filled with it. Okay, and people have weaponized that word. All right? So what does this mean? Okay? As the church submits to Christ, so, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Think about the real thing for a second, all right? You see, Jesus initiates. Jesus sacrifices. Jesus does everything in loving service of his bride, the church. And the people of God all throughout Scripture are calls to respond with joy, not begrudgingly. Right? With respect and admiration. With a trust that actually leads to sacrificial living for Jesus. You see, Jesus' great love for me means that I can trust him and forget about myself. It's just not about me anymore. It's about him. And, and what you realize is that it's actually, what a wife's role, it's actually incredibly powerful. Because it's a role of using her gifts to support and, to, and contend for the good of her husband, to be his biggest fan, to be someone who wants to see him succeed and not fail. It enables instead of instead of replacing him. Um, Evie Hill, who uh, he's the long he's this longtime well-known African American pastor in, in Los Angeles, and he he actually gave an amazing sermon as, at his wife's funeral after she died of cancer back in the eighties. And before Jane, his wife, before they, they met and were married, um, Evie was actually, I mean, Jane was really a woman of wealth. Uh, her dad was the president of a college. She grew up on a college campus, and she would go to really nice dinners, and she lived in a very, very nice home. And, uh, but she mo- chose to, like, marry this lowly creature like Evie. And so at Jane's funeral, okay, Evie tells the story of how early in their marriage, he came home one night just exhausted and beaten down from work. And he opens the door, and, they, and there, he looks inside, and there's this candlelit dinner uh, in the dining room. And the table is fully set, and the dinner is fully prepared. And he walks in, and he's like really excited. He's like, okay, I can get behind this. This is great. And so he walks to the back bedroom to change and get ready to go come back out for dinner. And he flips the light switch on, and nothing happens. And he flips it on again, and nothing happens. Right? And then, it, and then it hits him. He begins to cry. Because he realized that he hadn't made enough money that month to pay off the electric bill. And the electric company had shut off their power. And so we walked out back, he, we walked out to his wife in tears, and he said, the power is out, isn't it? And she just looked at him, and she started to cry with him, and she said, baby, you worked so hard. Well, we couldn't pay the bills, and that's okay. And at the funeral, what Evie said was this. He said that she, in that moment, could have ruined me that night. She came from means, from great dining experiences, from wealth. But instead, she thanked me for working hard and made it into a candlelight dinner. That is real gospel power. Responding to her husband's love with trust, respect, and appreciation. That's the kind of character that Jesus is actually making in all of us by his unwavering love, and making us into a people who love and serve and forgive and live for him for the sake of others. So, so how does the pattern of marriage actually function in the world? Okay, right. The hope is that even children would understand this, right? The hope is that when children are even playing outside and one of their friends asks, hey, what does it mean to follow Jesus? That their, their reply would be this, have you ever seen how my dad loves my mom? Or how my mother gives herself in happy devotion to my dad. It's sort of like that. 
That's the pattern to a marriage that displays its purpose. Jesus' love for his church. Okay, so we've seen the purpose of marriage, the pattern of marriage, now the, the, the power of marriage. Okay, So lastly, the power of marriage in verses 29 through 31. Right, we've gotten to this point, you're probably thinking, like, wow. <laughs> like, have you felt the impossibility of this? Okay? Like, I mean, maybe you say, I mean, okay, awesome, that, that sounds nice, but like in real life, in real marriage, like a real wife is not like always joyfully, willingly respecting and submitting to her husband, right? And, and certainly in real life, a husband isn't Jesus, <laughs> or always acting like him. Yes. So, so how does this kind of divine drama actually even begin to happen? Right? Paul is saying, you see, you got to know the real thing. Because here's the irony. Ephesians 5 isn't mainly about earthly marriage between a husband and a wife. It is, in some sense. But this isn't merely a manual for marriage. One author pointed out that there is more in Ephesians 5 about the relationship of Christ and the church than there is about earthly marriage. More than half of the words in our passage deal with with Christ in the church. Why? Because <laughs> Paul is saying the reason for this is because it is actually expressing the union that we all truly crave for. Everyone, whether we're married or not. Everything good about healthy marriage are just signposts to Jesus himself. All the things that you long for and, and get a taste of in marriage ultimately is pointing to, to him. Like, consider your longing for intimacy, okay? Like, all of us long for that. We, we may not all be married, but we all want intimacy. We want to be known, to know my fears, to know my quirkiness, to know my sin. And instead of rejection and laughter, being actually met with love and acceptance. Finally, naked and unashamed. All of us want that. But that intimacy is only perfectly found in who Jesus is. He knows all of your fears. He knows all of your shame. All of the stuff that you're scared of to share with your friends right now. The stuff that you will try and hide from your spouse. He moves towards you in love. That's his sacrificial love towards you. It's only the intimacy of Jesus that will actually enable you to begin to be vulnerable and trust a broken spouse. But if you get married for intimacy alone, you will constantly be frustrated. You just will. Right? Consider your longing for security. Right? No, no matter what you go through in life, depression, pain, suffering, loneliness, sin, no matter what, you, what I go through, someone is going to stick with me and never leave me. That's what we long for, right? Well, if you put that ultimate expectation on your spouse, you will always get frustrated. But Jesus has promised to never, ever leave you or forsake you. He will walk with you in pain, in joy, in depression, in loneliness. And He will even walk with you to the point of death. We are covenant breakers. He is a covenant keeper. Let me say that again. We are covenant breakers. He is our covenant keeper. He has vowed covenant vows to love you with an unending love. And He gets to say when that love ends, and it never does. You see, dating, married, single tonight, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what Ephesians 5 is saying is that your soulmate, the one that you were made for, your soulmate isn't your boyfriend tonight. 
It's not your, your wife one day. Your soulmate is in heaven right now. That's true. And that frees you. That actually frees you to finally sacrificially love. It frees you to embrace the role that God has given you. Because it's not about me or my happiness and my needs anymore. That's what marriage produces, is self-forgetful love. Right? It's a strong, secure, and free wife that can forgive, that can encourage, that can be a husband's biggest fan, even admits failure. It's a strong, secure, and free husband that can lay down his work, his strength, his reputation for his wife. That is powerful because it displays the very power of the gospel. I'll end with this. Okay, listen, I know I've used this illustration before. All right. Uh, I promise I won't use this for another three years. Maybe next week. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, right. Uh, the great 19th century hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, okay, she was born blind. All right. And for 95 years of her life, she never saw a thing, just darkness. But she made some incredible great hymns, Blessed Assurance. And, and people all of her life would ask her, like, man, Fanny, Fanny like, you were so gifted in writing and singing. And she, they'd, they'd be just so disappointed, like, man, we really wish, wish you were born with eyesight. Like, why were you born blind? And when she got to the end of her life, she said this. She said, I'm so glad that I was born blind because that means that the first thing that I'll ever see will be the face of Jesus. And I don't want anything else to cloud my vision of that. And look, when she saw Jesus, I promise you, she forgot about all the things that she had never seen on earth. I promise that she didn't regret one bit all of the supposedly things that she missed on this earth. She didn't miss out on anything. Listen, Earthly marriage, it is a good and beautiful gift. But it's not the real thing. And the day is coming, Christian, that when you will embrace Jesus and you will experience truly being naked and unashamed and completely satisfied and overwhelmed with the eternal love as you feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb forever. And no matter if you are married, not married, you have a crummy marriage or a great marriage, you will, without a shadow of a doubt, know that you have not missed out on anything in this life. That guarantee, that reality, can free you to live for the kingdom of God, whether you are married or whether you are single. Do you know that kind of love? It's only found in Jesus. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that one of the most significant ways that you have shown your redemptive love for your people is revealing yourself as a great bridegroom who loves his bride. Lord, we thank you that all of world history, for those who are in you, are headed to an eternal wedding feast. And it's the wedding that we don't have to plan for or, or pay for because you planned it before the foundations of the world and you paid for it with your own blood on the cross. And it's a feast of grace because it's completely undeserved. It costs you everything, but it is free for us. And it's a wedding we will enjoy because on that day, our dirty garments of sin will be replaced with the white gown of Jesus' beauty and righteousness. And it's a wedding that will never end. Where we look forward to that day. The only 
proper response for us tonight with this truth is to love and to sing and to wonder the glorious riches of your love. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.